Hi there, and welcome to Military Histories, a podcast from York Army Museum. Each week we share an interview from the Royal Dragoon Guards audio archive. Throughout June we will be sharing interviews with World War II veterans. You can find more details about the Royal Dragoon Guards Oral History Project in the show notes. If you want to find out a bit more about our museum, there are links to our website and social media channels in the show notes too. In this week's interview you can hear Major General Henry Woods talk about deployment to Normandy, his experiences during the Second World War, including injury, and how the war ended on his 21st birthday. He goes on to describe his service in Korea, Aden and Benghazi. Major General Woods served with the 5th Inniskilling Dragoon Guards from 1943 to 1967. Thanks for listening, future episodes will drop every Friday. This is an interview by Colonel Mark Faulkner of Major General Henry Woods, CB, MBE, MC, DL, on Tuesday the 14th of February 2014 at Grafton House, Tockwith, North Yorkshire. General Henry, um, could you just tell me first of all to start the interview off, how you came to join the Skins? Uh, yes, uh, it was largely by chance, uh, as things often are in life. Uh, I told my troop officer at Sandhurst that I wanted to uh, to be a regular officer uh, if one survived. And uh, this was in October 1943. And uh, he uh, said, uh, well, there were only two regiments, uh, which if your father hasn't got much money, you should think about. Uh, one was the Skins and the other was the 11th Tsars. And uh, so I said, well, my mother's family came originally from Ulster, so I thought the Skins was a good idea. And the commanding officer uh, came to conduct interviews, and I found myself about 34th in a long queue. Uh, and of course, after an hour and a half or so, somebody came and said, well, that's it. Anybody who hasn't been interviewed, that's it for the day. And the uh, next thing I got was a letter from the adjutant to say, we're looking forward to your joining us. So when you finished Sandhurst, you joined the regiment, was, that was during the war still? Yeah, but yes, the uh, regiment was uh, in Northumberland. And I was, uh, uh, of course, establishments were, were, were fairly large in those days. So every squadron had at least one or two supernumerary troop leaders. And as the newest joined in C Squadron, uh, I, that's what I find myself doing, chores. <laughs> and at what stage did you deploy to, um, to Normandy? Yeah, we, the regiment deployed to Normandy in July. We actually sailed, I think I might be saying, we sailed from Portsmouth in a landing craft infantry uh, on the 19th of July and uh, marched ashore off Rhino. Rhino was the enormous uh, 
platform. It was in Melbury, Melbury Harbour. Yeah, which is part of Melbury Harbour. Uh, we didn't even get our feet wet. <laughs> and we marched inland for about a couple of miles. And there was a wonderful sheet, a 160 pounder tent sheet. Right but on four poles, and two splendid warriors in the Royal Army Service Corps who had a line of cookers and burners, and out of the cookers we got a stew, out of the, the uh, we got hot tea, and that was our rations, and we lay down in literally in a copse, right. there were about three small copses and each squadron had one. And uh, then the following day we were moved to, to uh, uh, north of Bayer right. to a farmhouse. Because of course our very distinguished commanding officer, Colonel Teddy Swetnam, had of course got himself and the regiment involved in the war almost without anybody knowing. <laughs> He'd arrived in, in, in France, separately from the regiment, and went to, to Montgomery's headquarters, said, here I am. They said, oh, we weren't expecting you. <laughs> the regiment then had to get a whole lot of tanks, uh, which were in the sort of reserve tank park, for the whole of the army group, and we started getting all the tanks ready. Uh, of course, then the then the powers that be said that the Fourth County of London Yeomanry had had a very rough time at Villers Bocage, yep. and we were to relieve them in Twenty Second Armoury Brigade, which duly happened. And. So you fought through right till the end of the war. Yes, and then then I was a troop. Then I was either uh, not only me, but a good example. Sometimes I had a troop. Sometimes I was just a tank commander in somebody else's troop. But this was the way that th things happened. Tanks got booed up. Somebody got hurt and had to be evacuated. Yep. And whoever was around at the time was then slotted in to what they were doing. Uh, and my first, uh, my first contact with the, uh, the, the, the crew of my tank, who then by and large were, remained, I remained with them. Um, for, for most of the war, they <laughs> and we went up and sat on a ridge, and were promptly mortared by the Germans. This was in the area of Montpensier, and uh, then the, squad, uh, the whole squad eventually deployed onto Montpensier, uh, and then. Then we were transferred over, the whole regiment was put onto transporters 
and were moved right across through the ruins of Carr, and it was a ruin too, uh, to uh, Saint-Pierre-sur-Dive, which, as its name implies, is on the River Dive. Yeah. And that crossed that, we crossed that on the way to the Seine. My first real experience of the nasty side of things was in just outside a little township called Bourneville. Uh, B Squadron had been leading the regiment. They had arrived at a, a ridge and from there on the ground sloped away northwards to the, to the river, to the sand. And uh, B Squadron had been held up by being shot at by German anti-tank guns. I was sitting at the back of C Squadron. John Waterhausen sent for me and said, go and join B Squadron. You're under command B Squadron and help them to get forward. So I motored forward and came over this ridge. And suddenly there was most shattering noise and my tank had actually been hit. So I ordered the two rear tanks to stay where they were, back on the ridge, not to come onto the forward slope. Uh, and uh, the, two the next tank, my corporal's tank, he was also hit. And so two crews gathered, somewhat shaken, mm -hmm. uh, uh, under uh, Calvary by the roadside. Yep. And then the battle moved on, and there was no tank for us at that stage. So we were shoveled back into the echelon. And uh, that really was, was my part, modest part, yeah. in what happened uh, uh, on the way up to the set. Anyway, we drew another tank the following day uh, from the shore and rejoined uh, my squadron. And I can remember very vividly the night before we were due to cross the Seine and take part in the great uh, uh, gallop up yeah. into Belgium and hold. Um, it poured with rain, so everyone was thoroughly miserable. Uh, most people went and sheltered inside the tank because at least you only got one dribble. Yeah. As opposed to people bivouacking alongside. And of course in Normandy nearly everybody dug a hole and backed the tank over it because of the German army's very effective use of mortars. Uh, anyway, it poured with rain, everyone was thoroughly miserable, and the regimental column formed up. Before it was dark, we motored along and crossed, I think, Les Andelis. Uh, and 
suddenly there was a bridgehead of inf an infantry division. I can't remember which one it was. But suddenly we got through the bridgehead and the command came over the radio, two up. And everybody fanned out from having been a long single file column sneaking along. Uh, and we motored like the devil for uh, almost going flat out yeah. until we got to a little village called Abancou, which is just south of the Somme. And we bivouacked there for the night. Uh, of course, none of our tanks had any night fighting capability, whatever other than the naked eye. And we went on the following day and passed Amiens, to the west of Amiens, across the Somme, and eventually reached the area of the Saint-Paul and the La Bassée Canal. Uh, and just about half an hour before we reached that area, my driver said that the, temp the temperature in the gauge was alarmingly high. He used slightly more earthy language. <laughs> and so we, we stopped and we pour, poured water into, into the radiators and then start up and motored on. And the same thing was happening again. Uh, eventually, we crept into the Richmond Harbour area, the last to arrive, and uh, it became plain then that the engine had seized up completely. So uh, we again were back to the Eshaw and, And then there was a pause because there weren't any tanks north of the sand available for somebody to take over. So the next, uh, I think, the only other, uh, two other things I would say about the fighting. Uh, one, one was uh, when, in the winter, when we, uh, when the whole of the division were involved in an op op operation called Operation Blackcock. And this was a winter operation to clear the funny triangle just south of Roermond between the Mars and the Roar. And uh, we, we had to great dramas there, because we started off at first light uh, on the 21st of January, 1944, 45, and this was fits and starts. Mm. Move a couple of miles, stop, 
go on. So covering a comparatively small distance took an inordinate amount of time. And in the evening, we could see the battle going on with Biscon, the regiment, were involved in a place called Ardenburg, uh, which was almost somewhere of Hurok. And we suddenly, the squadron was told to embark a whole company of the Queen's regiment, who clambered on, sat on top. Uh, <coughs> and they all had their greatcoats rolled up, except for a few. And I became very worried lest the greatcoat hanging over the side of the tank would drag the unhappy infantrymen. Mm. So we persuaded them to put all their greatcoats on top of the turret. And then we motored through a follow it's actually, I think today you'll find it's a Dutch state forest. Uh, and finally arrived and dismounted the infantry. And the following day, we attacked with another auto infantry, a place called Adillenburg. And one of our more distinguished troop leaders, Hugh Craig Harvey, uh, he, uh, he kept on getting tanks shot from underneath him. Uh, I was advancing parallel to him, and for some reason or other, I was spared this <laughs> game. Uh, and, and he got an MC for that, quite rightly, too. Uh, and the other time was after the crossing of the Rhine. Uh, Again, we were motoring from one village or township to another. And uh, one place, the RAF, had bombed the place so thoroughly that no one could get through. So I was told to go along and see if I could find a crossing uh, to the east of this township uh, and I did and I found a railway line. So he started easing the tanks one at a time, it was a very rickety bridge. Was that Sir Hutton Gabosh? Sorry? Was that Sir Hutton Gabosh? No, that was, uh, this is, this was uh, uh, Stadlon. Sadlon. Uh, and, uh, oh yes, until we came to start getting the tanks off the railway line. If you can imagine, the tank track would fit very neatly underneath uh, a sleeper. The sleeper would then rise and take the tank track off I don't know, the idler or the one of the wheels. 
so we had a hell of a job and then motored on through the night uh, and eventually caught up with the rifle brigade who had found another route round the, to the west of Statlon and uh, they were, I think they were very relieved to see us because they were completely out of touch uh, with anybody and being shot at and feeling somewhat lonely and miserable. Um, I, I played a very minor part in the Satogunbosch battle um, there because of a shortage of tanks. I was a, a crew commander in uh, Bill Aykroyd's troop and uh, um, I think the only notable occasion then was uh, the evening of the second day and we had reached a bound and we ordered to halt. Uh, I didn't know this at the time, but there was a frightful row going on between my squad leader and the infantry battalion commander. Uh, we were just sitting there. I was beside a barn, and suddenly, interview, motoring at right angles to me, were two German self-propelled guns. So you know, it was absolute God's gift. It was about a hundred hundred meters range. They weren't expecting anybody. Uh, neither was I. <laughs> I think what was notable about that was I managed to recover my surprise rather more quickly than they did. So we blew both of them up. Uh, but that was the Togelsbosch battle was very largely uh, fought by A and B squadrons. And our battle, you know, it was a perfectly genuine battle was subsidiary to that. Yeah. Uh, and that was the reason why we were halted, because they were behind. Yeah. Uh, yes. And where did you end the war? Sorry? Where were you when, when the war came? Well, I was actually in hospital in, in, in Brussels, because the place called Immenbjörn, uh, I Again, I was sent for and told to go be under command A Squadron, who were battling their way through the Tutorberger Wald. Yep. Uh, and they had managed to get through the first wooded ridge. And they were actually in a sort of plain between Ridge 1 and Ridge 2, and Ibn Buren, again a small German town, uh, not far from Osterbrook, yeah. uh, was, uh, was the far side of the plane. And coming to it, uh, uh, as we were from the south, there were 
bags of houses. There was a farm and the farm buildings and uh, I suppose what we would call ha ha war. Yeah. of it. And uh, the, the, I and another troop, mine and another troop had, had been detached right from we were both trying to advance and trying to get the infantry forward. And the infantry came under heavy fire. The heavy fire came from this ha-ha wall or behind it. Yep. And uh, 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 the other thing was the sniping. Uh, 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 two, two, two chaps were, were killed outright. Uh, the other troop leader, my squad, was killed on my left, and troop leader of a squad was killed. And uh, after that, I kept my head down. Uh, but in the evening, when the, the Germans had withdrawn, we motored on about a thousand yards, and came to the leading company of the infantry. And the idea was that my troop would spend the night with them. So I left the main road, having, having met one of their sentries. And so I said, well, I'll guide my tank in. So I walked in front of the tank. And suddenly there was a burst of fire. I won't say who from. But I was shot in the leg. So anyway, um, I was bundled onto the uh, onto the uh, my tank, and that was used to take me back to Ascon headquarters, who was just a few yards back down the road, and uh, and from there I was transferred, you know, through the normal. Okay. Chain and finished up in Brussels, and uh, then I was granted sick leave. That was fine, three weeks sick leave in back in UK. So <laughs> on my on the day that the war ended, which also happened to be my twenty-first birthday party, I was sitting waiting for. Uh, uh, a passage to Tilbury, and I heard the most tremendous. I was at a place called Coxhill Mare, which was one of these reinforcement holding units, and I remember hearing the most tremendous uh, feu de joie <laughs> from a, a Czech brigade who were besieging Dunkirk, <clears throat> and suddenly. The end of this tremendous firework display, silence. And of course, we'd been told that the war was coming to an end. So that's, that's the end of that war. And then you talk about the, uh, the British Army. The oh, Lions, yes, um, I think you're probably the thing to say is that we established a, a tremendous reputation. Uh, in BOR, 
both because we were, as the Royal Yardie G are today, very professional. We also, of course, had um, tremendous sporting successes. And, uh, Peter Duckworth uh, and the Pentathlon. Very good reputation. Uh, it was Peter Duckworth and Pentathlon uh, and other officers, uh, uh, Tony Millen, for example, uh, and uh, he was then Lance Corporal Bright, but eventually he was Sergeant Bright, uh, who were all, uh, they were the backbone of the British Army Pentathlon team. Uh, there was uh, uh, and of course, horses played a prominent part. Uh, it was scarcely a, a fortnight went by without some horse equine activity somewhere. Uh, horse shows. Uh, um, we ran for three years, I think. We ran what was then called the Rhine Army Horse Show. And nearly all the people were eventually uh, persuaded to help with the with the British British team. Yeah, with oh, no, with it was actually running. Nearly all the people we used within the regiment eventually finished up running the international horse show at Olympia or Wembley or wherever. So a, bit, a real feather in your cap. Well, uh, one was uh, yes. Um, for me, I I was a a, uh, a cog in a machine. And um, at what stage did you deploy to Korea? Uh, I was in the in fact I commanded the advance party, so I left at the beginning of uh, November. I'm sorry, wrong. I left in the middle of October. And then you have to add sailing time. Uh, long before the days of air trooping. We really had a glorified holiday uh, at Her Majesty's expense, going ashore at places like Aden and Colombo and Singapore and Hong Kong. And General Charles Keatley, who was then the Colonel of the Regiment, uh, he was in Singapore as Commander-in-Chief uh, Far East Land Forces. and. Uh, Uh, every, everybody was was bitten, except for some hapless person who who was uh, the order officer. Uh, everyone was was bitten ashore and entertained and so forth. Korea itself was a bit of a shock. It got there because 
all these mountains and hills were covered in snow. And we started off with this amazing rail journey from Pusan, where we disembarked, uh, all the way up to um, with John Boo. I can spend that for you later if, if it would help. Uh, which is the railhead and there are the eight czars who we were relieving were there greeted us with that well-known uh, army reviver uh, fortified tea <laughs> bags of rum and uh, we, the advance party had all had, uh, you know, takeover responsibilities in producing the takeover plan. And uh, I was actually at that moment the regimental signals officer. Uh, and at the beginning of December, I think it was the 2nd of December, uh, the, the main body of the regiment arrived at Busan and again had the same extraordinary rail journey in antiquated, uh, very uncomfortable wooden carriages. <laughs> And uh, I mean, career really for the regiment uh, was uh, was like going back to the Second World War, like the, I imagine uh, the fighting in Italy, the casino and all that. Yeah. There was the extraordinary mountains and hills. Uh, and we sat on one range of hills, which roughly followed the 38th parallel. And the tanks were dug in enormous, eventually. And we had to do this because uh, we had two occasions when we suffered severe losses, when a mortar bomb or shell actually plummeted straight down and, and blew up inside the tank. It was very nice. Um, and uh, as I say, we finished up with these enormous bunkers, miles of sandbags. And I think the most notable thing, I mean, that's my... My memory is, is, because I then became adjutant, and my, my memory is mostly of dealing with all the problems an adjutant is supposed to deal with. Yeah. And I wasn't very involved, except on two occasions, the two occasions when we did raids into enemy lines. And... Uh, The whole business of coordinating uh, air, artillery, 
tank guns, mortars, etc., uh, and making sure that they did what they were told yeah. uh, proved, you know, quite a major t task. Uh, but that was my closest to uh, seeing China. Though I was taken up, I remember a light-hearted thing. I remember going to visit one troop who was sitting one ridge and looking across at another one about half a mile, mile away. And it was pointed out to me that there was a trench which, which ran along the crest of the ridge and it finished up with a little roof and Chinese soldiers were seen at regular intervals walking along the path but sometime before we realised what they were actually doing it was their loo. <laughs> so we put a shell into it. <laughs> uh, and I think, yes, my, I refer you only, because I think it's your best source of information about Korea is is that. Tracks in Korea by Captain C.J. Baldwin. Yep. Um, which has just been published. So after Korea you went to Catholic? We had no <laughs> I think the regiment were, were, were ill-used, God knows by whom, but uh, instead of going home, we, we went to, to Shandor camp in the canal zone, which is the worst, most bloody awful camp I've ever been in. Through miles of sand, uh, some tin huts, a little cluster of quarters uh, in the middle and the, the soldiery were under canvas and when the ghibli blew up you know it really was most unpleasant <laughs> and the amenities for the soldiers was, were absolutely nil and uh, poor old Dick Vikers went marched storming off to British troops, Egypt headquarters, to protest loud and long. To course, everybody knew uh, that uh, we were on the way out from Egypt and the Canal Zone. Yeah. And so, of course, there was no money to do anything. I mean, we organised all all sorts of things. We organised uh, uh, swimming in the Red Sea, snorkelling, you know, and all these multicoloured fish. And uh, uh, we took, we mounted expeditions into the Sinai Desert, up to St Catherine's Monastery, uh, and we did everything possible. And we had film shows once a week, etc. But the soldiers, 
whose morale, as usual, survived almost everything. Um, you know, were really pretty unhappy, having had a year in Korea, separated from their families, and then having the same again for a further year at Chando. Uh, and uh, to go see personal thing of notice, I had the privilege of commanding the regimental detachment in the coronation procession of Her Majesty. It was a great privilege and a light-hearted story. Squadron Major Gawa uh, was, was in the detachment. We had the, the standard, etc. And rather uh, like my description of advancing in France. <laughs> the procession went in fits and starts. <laughs> and there was one superb moment when we had halted near the bottom of St. James's Street, i.e. our backs were to the front of yeah. St. James's Palace. And there was a very merry party going on in the first floor <laughs> of a house. And somebody threw down uh, some coins, and I heard Tarmajigar growl, first man who picks up a coin, I'll have him. And nobody did. So at the end of the coronation you then went to Catrick, did you? Or? Uh, well, no, I, I, we still had the coronations in June. And so we 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 actually moved to Catrick in December. So it took the regiment that long so, to get back. So, yes, I mean, the detachment, of course, apart from myself and and Tamajagara, were nearly all uh, chaps at, who were at ERE in England anyway. There were eight of us all together, and the late ex-sergeant Pooley. Was uh, I, I remember he he was next to me. There wasn't there. There was a whole block, eight wide, yeah. from all the Royal Armoured Corps. Marvelous, great day. Um, so on on the way, it of course it tried to rain. Thank Thank God it stopped. <laughs> it's, I've, I've never liked the smell of wet surge. <laughs> so I think, yes, and Catrick, again, was, uh, was a great opportunity to, to play sport, as well as to do the training regiment job. And uh, all sorts of characters came to the fore. I suppose I should mention here uh, the extraordinary example that uh, uh, Colonel, long afterwards, General Monkey Blackout played. Um, 
if I wanted an example. Yeah. Well, I think it's one of the few commanding officers who's gone three rounds in the boxing ring. And so, how long were you in Catrick for? Well, I personally was in Catrick only for um, uh, 21 months. And from there you went to? Uh, because then I went to the uh, pre-staff college and then the staff college and, uh, and then my first staff appointment. Which was, which was what? Uh, GSO two Armoured School and Infantry at Warminster. And so, when did you rejoin the regiment after that? Uh, Nineteen sixty. And that was in Senlaga. And that was. Uh, that's Senlaga. And the regiment's role in Senlaga was that... Um, Sorry? The regiment's role in Senlaga was um, oh, the, part the of... the regiment was then the, the armoured regiment with 2nd Division. And it was a round of training and... Uh, uh, yes, I mean, at that stage... Uh, we still had a flow of national service people, all ranks. Um, you know, and they they took us up to establishments, as yep. it were, as opposed to the regular corps in the middle. Uh, but actually, I've nothing but praise for national service people. I mean. In Korea, for example, or just when we were forming up to go to Korea, uh, over a hundred of them volunteered a sort of gentleman's agreement so they would not insist upon being shipped back to England after only six months in Korea. The War Office, I think, quite sensibly said, Anybody with, with less than nine months won't go because it's too expensive. And uh, but but uh, again, their spirit, their liveliness. Uh, if you look back in the journals at the time, you will see the most marvelous cartoons, which were drawn by a clerk in the quartermaster's department. Which told the whole story. Yeah, he was called Old Top of Prima. Yeah. <laughs> and he, you know, and they were all, too, they, because they were all, to put it bluntly, they were all from all walks of life. And they, they assimilated training. Yeah. I think, certainly slightly more quickly than, for instance, what one reads pre-1914 regular soldier who's, you know, not perhaps had 
quite the intelligence of, of the National Service people we had. Because they came from all walks of life. Right, yeah. Uh, they were very good. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, Catrick. Yes, I think so. the sporting side, we won the Cavalry Cup then. And Master Catrick, I can't remember how, how I managed this. Oh, I was already at the staff college. Um, and uh, we had a tremendous parade in Enniskillen for the laying up of the original Six Enniskillen Dragoons standard in St. Mark McCartan's Cathedral. Which I know was replicated quite recently. Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. History repeating itself. Well, yes. I mean, Mikey Blackup was a, a most outstanding person uh, in every possible way. Uh, one of the remarkable things he did, which is relevant to this, was before 1956. Uh, the the regiment had no settled recruiting area, and so Monkey marched himself into the, the old war office and sought an interview with the adjutant general and said, "I've got a plan. All the cavalry regiments should have their own areas of recruiting. Up till then, we had none." And from that, our connections with Cheshire, our connections, of course, the revival of our connections with Inniskillen, uh, the, the posting of sergeants regiment for tours, recruiting, all of that, all of that stemmed from Monkey saying, I've got an idea. And that remains the, the and that's still, system still today. going now. Yeah, a great legacy. Yeah, I thought to put uh, put that in uh, as an example of the sort of uh, gung ho almost go ahead atmosphere, which 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 monkey again created. You know, vibes went out to people. And <clears throat> we were talking about Senlaga. You were a squadron leader in Senlaga, were you? Uh, yes, I commanded a squadron. And then uh, um, uh, this was with ha Harry Walker in command. And uh, I was, I, my squadron were with the Grenadiers, the third Grenadiers, and we had just finished, or were about to finish, a joint training session 
het beugelzij, omdat ja. ik zou een doodse woord En maar wat wil ik De Grandias gave a sort of cocktail party. I think to say thank you to the people in the permanent staff of the vocal sang. And uh, we were all in tents and marquees and so forth. And uh, a ramrod stiff grenadier marched up to me. Miss Corporal or something, stamped his feet in typical guardy fashion and said, Sir, you wanted on the telephone. I said, all it was was a miserable field telephone in a corner, in one corner of this enormous marquee, and at the other end was this party going <laughs> I said, hello, Harry at the other end. I said, can you hear me? I said, but we're difficult here. <laughs> and he said, uh, the second in command has for family reasons, has had to resign his commission and has gone. And I want you to come back and take over a second in command. So I was actually about to have a weekend in Brussels with Imogen. Uh, you know, and I said, <laughs> I said, oh, I know it sounds sort of uh, perhaps a bit touch selfish, but what about my weekend? <laughs> and he said, oh, have that, have that. Then come straight back, hand over to Richard Keatley, which I did. And then, again, a very exciting, exhilarating time uh, with Harry. Uh, and with the 1961 Standard Parade, uh, which it's, it, perhaps it, it sounds as though I was boasting, it's not meant to be so, but uh, Harry. Um, I think Harry had bottle explosions of temper, mm. and one of the objects of his wrath on occasions were people like quartermasters and so forth. He found something he disapproved of, and I found myself as a sort of go-between, uh, making sure that if people had genuine problems, we knew what they were, yeah. uh, and if they weren't, then perhaps uh, not always, they didn't always feel a full flow of Harry's wrath. <laughs> uh, but an exciting time, and again, the regiment had a, a high, I think, a high reputation then uh, in BOR. Um, again, largely based on the sporting model. And um, <coughs> when you left Senlaga, you went uh, to... I, yes, I went, or actually what happened was my father died and I went to Harry and 
said was any chance at all I would have been due to go back on the staff anyway uh, was any chance at all of a, a, a job in England to help my mother and uh, Harry said well see what we can do and a uh, fortnight later I was posted to the Ministry of Defence And, and then he rejoined the regiment. Um, and then rejoined the regiment in 1964. Uh, as commanding officer at the stage? I, uh, no, I, I'm just, sorry, you were leaning forward, I wasn't quite sure. All right. Um, yes, I rejoined the regiment with as. Gavin Murray's second in command. Uh, I was really to have a real understanding of what a second in command is supposed to do. And uh, uh, again, the moment I arrived, we were involved in the planning of the move to a one year unaccompanied tour in Aiton. Uh, and again, I found myself doing the advance party business. Uh, so I left, I think, in November. Uh, November 1964. And then there we had uh, in contrast to the Richard Camp at Chandour, uh, at, at uh, Little Aiton, we had superb air-conditioned huts to sleep in. I don't think, I think it, it's almost a universal tourism. Nobody minds being hot, very hot during the day. Uh, it was just your working hours, so working from very early in the morning until late lunch, and then everyone yeah. collapses. But what really gets people uh, maximum heat in the desert is night time. Because yeah. you're, you're sweating, you're, the heat, uh, and so on. It makes one very miserable. Can't sleep. A very bad temper. <laughs> um, yes, I think the regiment, again, we were in a funny situation. We had one squadron embarked on landing, in landing ship, tank, in the Persian Gulf. One squadron in Hong Kong and the rest of the regiment less detachments uh, in Little Aden. And we and I found myself occasionally as commanding officer um, with 
kind of, of uh, tensions where one was the piggy in the middle. Well, I felt it was my job to go and, and visit the outstations, i.e. The, the embarked squadron and the squadron in Hong Kong. And uh, I, I had to go and argue the case to the GOC in Aden. I, I said to him, you know, how, how can I be satisfied that maturital standards are being maintained if I can't get out of Aden? So did you, you get you got your way and got to <laughs> some some persuasion, uh, and then of course we started planning uh, for the move back to to England. Curtain in Lindsay. I'm sorry, I missed to Libya. Libya comes in between. So you didn't go back. Home. You went so everyone had Libya. some leave, uh, and the great thing about Libya was that. There were quarters, men quarters, for, I think, everybody, or everybody who, who was entitled. Uh, and again, there were clubs, uh, swimming clubs, and so forth, and uh, we had, uh, we there was slightly less horse activity than I would have liked, but uh, uh, there was polo. And uh, but but for the outbreak of the nineteen sixty seven war. Uh, Most people, while not perhaps being terribly pro-Arab, uh, might have felt that the uh, uh, life in Libya was was it wasn't all roses. It wasn't complete hell, which yeah. Chandler had been. So, during your time as commanding officer in Libya, um, what what happened? Uh, what events happened? Well, um, yes, I think uh, the two notable events that I remember was, uh, in fact, the. the escape of then Captain Gaddafi who uh, was the signals officer of the Libyan Armoured Car Regiment 
and for interior political reasons of which I know nothing, um, he decided he had to escape to Egypt to, to worship NASA. And uh, this this regiment were in camp near the near the Egyptian border, and the commanding officer woke up, was woken by the sound of engines roaring, and stumbled out of his tent, seeing flash, three armored cars take off, and go into Libya. If they had been stopped, perhaps history would have been different. <coughs> but they weren't. Uh, I think the other... Uh, oh yes, the only other event was... Uh, sea Squadron had organised an expedition to erect American bomber which would call the lady be good, which had lain undisturbed for 40 years or so then. And uh, I decided to mount a bit of an exercise for the helicopters, which we just acquired. And start on Stratford with detail to fly me down to the Navy be good. We, we went down to the BP camp near Elagela and filled up with petrol with fuel and then took off again. After about half an hour, our electrics failed and uh, started on Stafford brilliant piloting. Brought, us down, brought me down by a, a BP landing strip. It was a smart with oil barrels. <clears throat> and of course we couldn't talk to anybody because we had no electrics, we had no power, nothing. So we could only hope that eventually somebody would realise we were missing. <laughs> well. I'm glad to say we spent a rather uncomfortable night uh, sitting in the cockpit of this helicopter and uh, <laughs> at about midday the following day an RAF aircraft from Adam came storming along the runway. Of course we rushed out and waved and so forth and that was our rescue. <laughs> and. When did you did you leave the regiment from Libya or as commanding officer? Sorry, did you finish your tour as commanding officer in Lib in Libya? Yes, I did. Yes, and handed yes. over to. I think the only other thing really to say about Libya is the events of the '67 uh, war. Yeah. Again, we had uh, we just indulged in all, all sorts of Queen's birthday do's. You know, I had a, a Rosemont on parade with the standard, etc. And we trooped the standard, etc. Yep. And the, the then Consul General, 
uh, Sir Peter Wakefield uh, took the salute. And uh, then we had a, I think we had a cocktail party or something for all the locals, local Brits, uh, for the Queen's birthday that evening. And the following day, suddenly, all hell was let loose. And there were, the, the regimental camp was about 300 yards off the main ring road round Benghazi. And suddenly we saw trucks commandeered with flags, people shaking their fists and shouting and so forth. And uh, we speedily realised we had a major crisis on our hands uh, because many of our families lived in hiring flats in Benghazi and you know what was what was happening to them so anyway we I think we reacted fairly quickly uh, and we got things organized the families were all brought in by coaches coaches instead driven by Libyans but you know without any problem at all until we had two two wives who were unaccounted for and the last report was that they were in their flats but they were in the middle of the town and they weren't quite sure what to do i don't think they had a telephone see. <clears throat> so all of this was relayed to us via libyan sources um, and uh, so we tried to organise a relief expedition and uh, Charles Taylor's squadron, Sea Squadron, they went in to the middle of Benghazi, Benghazi. But actually what had happened, of course we didn't know this at the time, was these two wives had been very sensible. They'd gone downstairs, they'd hailed a taxi. <laughs> and the taxi man said, I'll get you out of this, because a mob at the end of the street. He said, I'll get you out of this. And did. Uh, then, of course, we had to extricate Charles and his squadron. And, and that's where uh, his, he had, again, he had his command vehicle with him, because otherwise he had no means of talking to me. Yeah. <clears throat> so that was set on fire, and Charles got badly, very badly burned, right? Um, but so did two of the, of the other people. We had a, a military policeman who and uh, someone else, I can't remember who, but there were two people who were also burnt. And at the time, we had B Squadron across the peninsula, 
the harbour area. The peninsula had all the diplomatic housing, etc. Except for two things. One was the British Council offices. They were largely staffed by Libyans, so they settled out the back door as the mob surged in and, and, and set that on fire. And at the same time, another bit of the mob was threatening United States Consul offices. And there we, we simply couldn't get to them during the day. Uh, but we organised, we managed to talk to them, they had telephones, so we could talk to them. Uh, all the other people, uh, which military mission with, with Libya, people like that, they were, they were all taken in to the headquarters barracks, which was old Italian barracks. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so by evening, we had all the families. Uh, we erected more. We erected tents for our soldiers and the wives and children that moved into into the the better accommodation. And that went. They were there for about a week, I suppose. But it was a slightly hairy time. Yeah. And uh, yes, I think uh, by the time I left in October, um, of course, everything was more or less back to where it had been. But relations with the Libyans. Well, always, I think, thereafter, slightly uncertain. One didn't quite know when a mob would suddenly arise. Almost got, got to the end, haven't we? Yes, I think we have. Just to finish, General Henry, would you like to just say something about your life after you finished command of the regiment? Uh, yes. Uh, well, I spent a, uh, a year and a half as assistant military secretary uh, to the commander-in-chief, British Army of the Rhine, who was then uh, an ex Tsar officer. General Shan Hackett, yep. uh, who again was a brilliant master and was not averse to uh, a, bit, a bit of skullduggery on the quiet with the highest of motives. Uh, as an example, uh, he wrote a letter criticizing the development of government policy as regards numbers games in BOR and uh, Mr Healy who was now Lord Healy who was then Secretary for Defence was absolutely furious 
senior officer should write this and what's the final spot. And uh, so <laughs> General Shand rang you. He said, I hear you're very angry with me, Secretary. Yes, said angry voice the other end. Well, said Shan, I would draw attention to the fact that I didn't write as Commander-in-Chief Army the Rhine. I wrote as Commander Northern Army Group. Now, it's a NATO appointment. Yeah. And, of course, he couldn't be touched. <laughs>